what would you sell your soul for? In other words, what's important to you? Important enough to sell something that could be eternal. Is it power? For a lot of people, it's power. Uh, in many ways, knowledge, strength of arms, whatever. But what about those things that are less definable along those lines? Uh, love being a, a big one. A lot of people sell their souls essentially because of somebody they love. They pour their time and effort into somebody that doesn't deserve it and will not return it. But they see something in that person that they want to save or they see something that person doesn't see themselves. And sometimes they're able to change it. We're going to find out what the companions, uh, we'll call them the companions of the end of the last home, are going willing to sell their souls for in part one of Dragons of Spring Dawning. When we last left, the last episode of uh, of uh, Dragons of Winter Night was pretty pretty rough stuff. We saw the death of Sternbright Blade, which was a definite uh, powerful moment and very sad and uh, extremely well done. As I've said before, Weiss and Hickman are extremely good at drawing out the worst parts of a story and making them the most brilliant writing. So now I would argue, though, that the beginning part of this, this book, fits more in the last book than it does, because our last book was definitely a Empire Strikes Back moment. You know, Luke loses his hand, the Emperor, you know, Han's always taken away by Boba Fett and Carbonite. You know, there's definitely not a lot of uh, good things happening there. So, and the third act usually begins... It does begin with some darkness, but it's just assumed by all the readers and the or the watchers that better times are coming. And you would you would think that the name of the book, Dragons of Spring Dawning, uh, would really draw in some good bright parallels, perhaps some hope. Uh, at first, there perhaps is none. a new hope. <laughs> it's a good one. Um, That's why I'm here. But. At, at very, very much at the beginning, there is not. There is not a lot of hope. It starts very dark. Um, one of the one of the plot points that I never liked was, uh, and I still don't understand it, and I don't think, know why they put him in there. Was uh, Barum the Everman? He had the green gemstone man. The guy had the gemstone in his chest. Um, I don't. I never got the. Why are there? Why they put that in there? Like uh, apparently, him and his sister. I mean, it 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 begins with him and his sister out after the cataclysm, looking for wealth or something to feed their family or whatever. Um, and they happen upon a a temple or something with beautiful jewels in it, and then they get into uh, a, a, 
an argument, and then his sister falls on this thing, and the, her blood turns it into a temple of Tachesis. Apparently, the Queen of Darkness needed the blood of an innocent to raise this temple and make her way back into the world after Huma and the good gods had banished her. Uh, I, I didn't get it. Um, I still, again... Um, I thought they could have done without it, but nevertheless, that's how it begins. Um, it also begins, uh, he is now a helmsman on Makesta Carthon's boat. We discussed her last time. She's one of the uh, Northern Argothians who are a group of um, black-skinned people. Um, they are definitely, especially for fantasy at this point, which was a pretty much an old boys game where you had most of your... Uh, characters are light skinned. They are European in origin. You know, I, I've discussed before how much I admired uh, Weiss and Hickman for really at this point, and even though it was ham handed in some points, at some points, uh, being very inclusive. You know, the Quishu Plainsmen um, are Native Americans, really. Um, the uh, Northern Agothians are black skinned. You know, um, things of that, that nature. Um, even your your non-human races aren't necessarily white skin. They discuss, they discuss Laurent's nut brown skin. Um, the dwarves are very ruddy as in they're like their skin's almost red. You know, that was not a thing in Tolkien. So, um, I think they were really trying to push the bounds of what fantasy was at that point. So we also start the first official part of the book is Tannis as we all know, uh, was discovered by Kidiara in an, in an alley. And they basically were, you know, in flagranted delecto for, <laughs> for a few days. I got that English, off. Uh, please. I got that off a uh, clue. Basically they were just having sex for a few days. Um, he told her some story that he had gotten into the dragon army. It's not true at all. You know, she should have known he's lying. She's very perceptive. Um, I will get into how much I dislike Kitty Ara, uh, soon. Um, uh, but how much I still admire her. Uh, but she loves Tannis and after her fashion, she's not really capable of love, but we start quote, the dragon army officers slowly descended the stairs from the second floor of the salt breeze Inn. it was past midnight most of the inn's patrons had long since gone to bed the only sound the officer could hear was the crashing of waves uh, of blood bay on the rocks below that's a pretty cool name the officer paused a moment on the landing casting a quick sharp glance around the common room that lay spread out below him it was empty except for a draconian sprawled across the table snoring loudly in a drunken stupor the dragon man's wings shivered with each snort the wooden table creaked and swayed beneath it the officer smiled bitterly then continued down the stairs he was dressed in the steel dragon scale armor copied from the real dragon scale armor of the dragon high lords his helm covered his head and face making it difficult to see his features all that was visible beneath the shadow cast by the helm was a reddish brown beard that marked him racially as human um tannis is leaving now he he has written a one thing i forgot to mention you know uh i'm still learning this um i'm no dan carlin who i really uh, aspire to be you're right up there with him but <laughs> uh is that Tannis has written this long, heartfelt letter to Kitty R about why he's leaving. And um, he's, you know, they actually have some text of it at the beginning. It is before the preface. Um, and it's overly poetic, I always found. And, um, you know, it's in verse. 
Um, he's basically he basically tells her he can't stay with her. Um, telling her that she's beautiful and he loves her, but she's poisonous is actually a you know a pretty um, accurate representation of what Kitty R is. She, he knows she's selfish. He knows she's power hungry. All these things, uh, like as we were discussing, uh, the theme of our show: what price power? What would you sell your soul for? Kitty R would sell her soul for naked power. She would, she would definitely. I mean, that's the thing she craves most, and that's why she's looking for this Barum the Everman. Um, Tannis has told her that he's he's seen her, and we get into why he's running basically because he couldn't keep it from her that he's on this ship. And, you know, it, it gets them into a lot of trouble. Um, I smell T-R-O-U-B-L-E. Am I right? <laughs> as he's leaving. As he's leaving. Yeah, Tannis kind of looks like Travis Tritt. Um, That's an Elvis song. <laughs> but I do remember the Travis Tritt version better because I'm a little bit That's younger. an Elvis song? Yeah, Elvis uh, did it originally. Oh, this, it was on the Hollywood uh, Honeymoon in Vegas soundtrack where a whole bunch of country artists did the... Uh, oh, this okay. is a different show. All right. We, we should be talking we're not, about we're not, this on the next show. Exactly. Let's let's do this other <laughs> show. Travis Shirt rules, though. Um, uh, God, no. Um, he's leaving, and, he, and the innkeeper asks him where he's going, and then he, tell, he says, uh, well, my name's Tadness Half, Half Elvin, blah, blah, blah. Basically, the innkeeper's asking him questions, and he has pointed questions, and he basically just you know tells him tells her goodbye whatever um then it turns out though that the drunken draconian sleeping snoring at the table wasn't actually asleep quote one other figure watched the officer as well the instant the door shut the drunken draconian raised its head its black reptilian eyes glittering stealthily stealthily it rose from the table its steps quick and certain patting lightly on its clawed feet it crept to the window and peered outside for a few moments the draconian waited then it too flung open the door and disappeared into the storm through the window the innkeeper saw the draconian head in the same direction as the dragon army officer walking over the innkeeper peered out through the glass it was wild and dark outside the tall iron braziers of flaming pitch that lit the night streets sputtering and flickering in the wind and the driving rain. Excuse me. But the innkeeper thought he saw the dragon army officer turn down a street leading to the main part of town, creeping along behind him, keeping to the shadows came the draconian. Um, basically, Kitty Yara, I think, if I'm perceiving it correct, Kitty Yara has told this dragon arm, this draconian to watch Tannis if he leaves. She, as the kind of person she is, trusts no one. Um, that was something learned by her when she was very young. Um, again, we discussed why Kitty already is the way she is. It does garner some sympathy, but a lot of people go through tough stuff and don't become the kind of awful person that she did. Um, there is a storm raging in Flotsam. Um, it is spring, so you know those violent storms in the spring. I would, I would consider that Crin, the weather is probably more extreme than the weather here on earth um Kren is a larger planet i mean uh, i've actually seen you know there's there are models of how big Kren is compared to the earth and i think Kren is a k-r-y-n-n it's either larger or smaller and it affects the weather somehow but it's of course very similar to our planet um but as tannis is walking through the uh you know you get a description of the storm quote Tannis walked swiftly, his head bowed, keeping near the darkened buildings that broke the full force of the gale. His beard was soon rhymed with ice. Sleet stung his face painfully. The half-elf shook with the cold, cursing that dragon army's cold metal 
against his skin. Dragon armor is cold metal against his skin. Sorry. Glancing behind him occasionally, he watched to see if anyone had taken unusual interest in his leaving the inn, but the visibility was reduced to almost nothing. Sleet and rain swirled around him so much that he could barely see tall buildings looming up in the darkness, much less anything else. After a while, he realized he had better concentrate on finding his way through town. Soon he was numb with cold that he didn't care much if any. He was so numb with cold that he didn't care much if anyone was following him or not. Um. Tannis makes his way back to the inn where the companions are staying. Remember, they had had the traveling, basically menagerie act, you know, with uh, Tika dancing and Raceland doing his illusions and Caraman performing, you know, uh, feats of strength and things like that. Uh, also, uh, Tannis doing archery and seeing in the dark, even though, because it's not apparent that he's elven, so a human, human being seeing in the dark is something. An elf seeing in the dark is not, because all elves have infravision, so... Um, they kind of like predators. They can just kind of see stuff. In well, the uh, well, kind of. Yes. I mean, it, I don't know what it would look like. We'll get into uh, a very complex version of that uh, with uh, the Dark Elves, uh, the Dark Elf trilogy, which is coming up. You know, it's in another world and introduces one of the most famous fantasy characters of all time, Dritt Stewart. And they literally have no light underground, so their their infravision has grown into them seeing. As much detail as we see with light, they see with heat. So it's a very, you know, interesting way of looking at things. Um, um, but now they've come to the end called the Jetties, and that's where they had separated to fry things out in town. Tennis had gotten attacked by an elf, remember, in the, uh, in the alley, ironically. And Kitty R had saved him, had killed this elf. And then we get into, you know, what was happening. Um, They, uh, of course, it's a, it's a. They didn't hadn't, they didn't know Tannis what had happened to him. He could have been killed. There are no cell phones on Kryn, so you can't report in. Really, um, I would have figured in this uh, ancient wasteland type, um, like maybe uh, elf phones. <laughs> <laughs> that doesn't deserve that. It doesn't at all. <laughs> Anywho, I'm canceling this. Show. <laughs> it's done. I'm finished. We've we've officially bottomed out. Um, we need to unplug and retool. Um, I'm going to talk to the brass. <laughs> and the brass is me. <laughs> You're finished. Um, Wait, I'm a nameless producer on this. Never mind. Uh, he comes in. Tannis comes in, and Caraman uh, is basically naked and yanks the door open and drags Tannis in. And you know, there's a heartfelt reunion. But then when they ask him. Uh, where he's been, um, he's evasive. The one person who's not buying it, of course, is drumroll, Raceland. So, and he he says, "Quote: Where have you been, half elf?" Raceland asked in his soft, whispering voice. Tannis swallowed nervously. "I was captured by a dragon high lord," he said, reciting the answer he prepared. The high lord thought I was one of his officers, naturally, and asked me to escort him to his troops, who were stationed outside of town. Of course, I had to do as he asked or make him suspicious. Finally, tonight I was able to get away. Interesting. Raceland coughed the word. Tannis glanced at him sharply. What's interesting? I've never heard you lie before, half-elf, Raceland said softly. I find it quite fascinating. Raceland is a cunt, <laughs> but he's but he is extremely intelligent and perceptive, and he knows uh, Tannis isn't telling the and whole story. And being a cunt. 
he knows a cunt. Right. When he says uh, that. Tannis isn't a cunt. Tannis is, you know, we're going to turn off any younger viewers who, uh, listeners who were be into this show about, you know, with our language and stuff, but I don't care. It's this, just this is an adult show. <laughs> this is an adult show, so deal with it. Um, yeah, we're. We're uh, from Australia, so we can say cunt. It means something different. Yeah, I'm. I, that's what I fall Everybody back. Everybody knows we're Australian. <laughs> um, and Tannis uh, describes a story. "Quote: The others nodded, absorbed in his story. Tannis, Tannis sighed in relief. As for race, on well, it didn't really matter what the mage thought or said. The other would believe Tannis ever race on even if the half off claimed day was night. Undoubtedly, Raceland knew this, which is why he didn't cast any doubts on Tannis' story. Feeling wretched, hoping no one would ask him anything else and force him to admire himself deeper and deeper in lies, Tannis yawned and groaned as his exhausted, exhausted past endurance. Um, he snaps at um, he snaps at Gold Moon here in a second because um, she says something about getting on board the ship. In, in the morning He snaps out And don't be a fool Nobody's gonna get on a boat In this gale Which is weird Because that's exactly What they do But he's Uncharacteristically I mean Tannis is I wonder if it's The fact that he is A very good person Tannis is a good person Conflicted of course But a good person Or the fact that he's Elven which they Essentially tell no lies And the guilt Starts to crush him Like he It starts to actually Make him physically ill Um, y- You know I know lots of people, including myself, who in the past were able to lie adroitly, um, but especially to myself. But as I've gotten older and I've grown as, as it, and this is when I was a kid, you know, kids lied to get a cookie. They lie, you know, all kinds of stuff. But as we get older, most of us are not able to lie so well. And we, you know, somebody who can lie straight face to you and not have a reaction is a dangerous person. So, um, you know, everybody lies. Society is, is, is a, is a, uh, is the glue the whole society together is lies because you can't tell people the truth. Oh, yeah. I mean, if your friend is dying of cancer and they ask how you look, you're like, you don't, you look like shit. I wouldn't let anybody near this room. You know, <laughs> you, you just can't do that. You tell them they look great and you kiss them on the forehead and you love them and you mean it in a certain way, as in you love that person, but they do look awful because they're dying. So um, I remember this is a um, this is a, an example of me being too honest. It's the day my dad was, died, um, he was laying in his bed and we were all in the living room and my sister walks in and she goes, he looks like he's dying. And I go, well, well he, he is dying. Because I just knew right. that was what was coming. I, and, and my sister just looks at me and goes, fuck you. <laughs> well, I mean, there's something to be said for that level of honesty. And then everybody laughed. And then, of course, but that's your guys' sense of humor. In my family, that would not that would not go over. No. I mean, you got to pick your, your spots. Right. With, I mean, and being I, me. But we do have our share of irreverence. But, you know, with things like that, we are very yeah, reverent. I should I probably mean, wait so, about a day before I crack that one, I guess, <laughs> sure. around other families. Yes. I mean, yeah. You know, I, I just lies are, are, and I think lies are good sometimes. If you you have to lie to somebody to save their feelings, I think that in in a sense that's a good thing. You don't want to crush them, you know. But but if they're heading down a path, that is yeah, bad, tell them the truth. Yeah, you yeah. Definitely tell and them. and he's lying to them because he can't own up to what he's done. You know, 
But again, back to our theme, what price, what would you sell your soul for? Tannis essentially is selling his soul for love. He loves Kitty Ara. He knows deep down that she's not capable of love, that she is, you know, hungers for power and would sell anybody in the way or kill anybody in the way, including himself, including her brothers. And we will see that put into play very soon. Um, on the other hand, say, so well, her brother, not Caraman. I, I was going to get into this, this dynamic of, you know, admiring Kitty R for raising her brothers, but what kind of people did she raise? She raised one brother, twin brothers, of course, one brother who is like her and would essentially sell anybody for power. And then she raised another brother who is so codependent that once his brother abandons him, which we all know that's going to happen, becomes a hopeless alcoholic who has no self-worth. That is one of my favorite moments in, in a series we will do later called Dragonlance Legends, where, you know, Caraman goes through this very, and it's a very complex concept for something that would be considered young adult, you know, action adventure fantasy. It's not something that high concepts do usually not go over very well in this level of book. Weiss and Hickman are able to nail it and they're able to nail it in these books and even much greater in the Dragonlance Legends and other books that they've written. The Deathgate cycle, which we will get into, is one of the finest pieces of fiction I have ever read. And it does do high-minded concepts extremely well. They are excellent writers. And as I've said, just get better the farther they go. In this book, they really start to come in their own. You know, they have some hackneyed moments and some, I'll say, mustache, mustache twirling and, you know, things like that. But they do have just excellent moments where they describe, you know, both good and awful things in beautiful ways. And there are some really bad things that happen in this book. But um, as we were saying, um, Tannis, one of the things that struck me as a, as a, as a piece I highlighted, though, as much as I said, Caraman is a codependent person. He's also a very sweet and genuine person. And he's the nursemaid. And one of the things that makes Tannis feel, I think most awful is that Caraman was willing to give up his bed and sleep on the floor. And helped him off with his armor and all kinds of stuff because he knows how knows how hard it is to take it off and all those things. Caraman is a truly sweet person. I've always really loved the character, and they've really fleshed him out. He's um he's just more than the strong fighter now. You know, he his his nature really starts to come to the forefront, especially very shortly with some with an awful thing that happens. But um I highlighted this this passage. Quote Tannis accepted the blanket gracefully. Cameron had given it to him, although he was not certain whether he was shaking with the chill or the violence of his turbulent emotions. Lying down, he wrapped himself in both a blanket and his cloak. Then he closed his eyes and concentrated, making his breathing even and regular, knowing that the mother hand, Caraman, would never sleep until he was certain Tannis was resting comfortably. Soon he heard Caraman get into bed. The fire burned below. Darkness fell. After a moment, he heard Caraman's rumbling snore. In the other bed, he could hear Raceland's fitful cough. When he was certain both the twins were asleep, man, Tannis stretched out, putting his hands beneath his head. He lay awake, staring into the darkness. Um, the Draconian, then, um, it's, it, we cut to Kitty R getting back to her room in the Draconian, telling her that Tannis has left. Um, she immediately questions herself why she cares about Tannis so much. I think that's the dy dynamic, too. When you have a narcissist, you have a person who loves them genuinely, and they wonder why that person is able to get to them. And the reason they're able to get uh, that person is able to get to them because they genuinely care for them, and they don't understand that. They crave it because they're still human beings, but 
is there, there's always that person with a narcissist who that narcissist will return to over and over and over again, you know, um, seen it so many times. Um, and, um, that's them. Uh, Tannis is a, is a, is a caregiver and a, and a loving person. He loves her. He loves her for things that she doesn't even see in herself because he sees there's good in her. It's like, um, let's get back to our Star Wars references where Padme sees that there's good in Anakin, you know, and there is, there was good in him. She was right. But man, how many terrible things do you have to do to, to be abandoned? He killed a bunch of children and he started the collapse of this galactic empire. And he, you know, he hunted down uh, and imprisoned and tortured his own daughter. You know, he, he never did. says thank you. when she made him coffee. <laughs> right. <laughs> he never used the force to uh, get her something off the shelf. I don't know. Um, uh, you know, it's always stories of redemption. I was at one point I was hoping that Kitty R would be redeemed, that she would see the error of her ways and stuff like that. But that is not going to happen for anybody, for any of those out there waiting. That is not happening. So it does happen with other characters. And I was happy to see it and actually very touched. There are parts that I, that I actually wept over in these, in, in the legend series, redemption stories, you know, um, but it ain't happening with her. So, uh, as a matter of fact, she kind of gets her just desserts. So, I, uh, I've i always loved that from from uh, Hot Fuzz. He's eating a piece of cake. And he said, I'll make sure everyone gets their just desserts. That's something that cracked me up. Um, that movie's so funny. It is the best. Uh, I still have not seen um, The World's End, which I it's need to. very funny, too. I know. It's on one of my old computers. I got a, uh, a warning for illegally downloading it. Neat. Yeah, it was fun. Um Anyway, the draconian tells her what's going on. Then she finds her letter, and the draconian is walking down the stairs, and he hears her armor being dashed up against the wall. She's actually hurt that uh, that he did what he did. Um, next, we get into... Tannis now has to get, even though what he said to Goldmoon, he knows that he has to get, get out of town. He knows that Kitty R is looking for them. He's putting anybody, everybody in danger with his lie. It's crushing him, and he just wants to get everybody out of there. So, A, he doesn't have to face his lie, and B, um, he, his friends won't be hurt. He still loves his friends, and um, they love him, too. I mean, I, I really love the dynamic between the char- with the characters here, uh, and we'll get into that. Quote, the gale blew itself out toward morning. The sound of water dripping monotonously, monotonously from the east thudded in Tannis's aching head, almost making him wish for a return of the shrieking wind. The sky was gray and lowering. Its leaden weight pressed down upon the half-elf. The seas will be running high, Caraman said sagely. I always love this. Caraman is such a goof. Having listened eagerly to the sea stories told them by William, the innkeeper of the pig and whistle in Port Balafour, Caraman considered himself somewhat of an expert on nautical matters. None of the others disputed him, knowing nothing about the sea themselves. Only recently guarded Caraman with a sneering smile when his brother, who had been on small boats only a few times in his life, began talking like an old sea dog. <laughs> it's funny. you know. He reminds me of me in a lot of ways. Like... He's big and goofy and strong, and sometimes he gets ahead of himself. And you know, but anyway, it's I always have great affection for him. He continued. The wise tankman continue. 
quote, maybe we shouldn't even risk going out, Tika began. We're going today, Tannis said grimly. If we have to swim, we're leaving Flotsam. The others glanced at each other, then looked back at Tannis. Standing, staring out the window, he did not see their raised eyebrows or their shrugging shoulders. They was aware of them all the same. The companions were gathered in the brother's room. It would not be dawn for another hour, but Tannis had awakened them as soon as he heard the wind cease at Savage Howl. He drew a deep, deep breath, then turned to face them. I'm sorry. I know it's, I sound arbitrary, he said, but there are dangers I know about that I can't explain right now. There isn't time. All I can tell you in this is this. We have never in our lives been more, in more dire peril than we are at this moment in this, in this town. We must leave, and we must leave now. He heard an hysterical note creep into his voice and broke off. They accept um, what he's saying. You know, of course, they're all alarmed. They wonder what's going on with him. They trust and love Tannis. Rachel knows something's up. And... Um, but again, Raceland sees no. It's it's advantageous and 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 convenient for him to not say anything right now because he knows that Tannis is right and something's happening. So he's not going to call him on it, and make a big thing of it. He's just like, well, he knows what's going on. So let's you know, obviously something's going on. So let's get the hell out of here. You know. Um, but despite myself, I really find myself liking Raceland sometimes. Um, his sheer determination to do something even though his health is completely shattered even though he's you know so frail you know and he has a brother i mean i couldn't even imagine there is a little bit of sibling rivalry with every group of siblings with twins i would think more so so it's either a big time sibling rivalry or they're just so together like uh every they're so perfect together sure they never even fight but i would think that that was the exception rather than the norm. Yeah, more often than not. Right. There was quite a bit of sibling rivalry between me and my brothers. You know, I, oh, um, my brothers could play music. I could not. I think maybe my brothers were jealous of my athletic abilities. I could play sports. I was strong. Now, Bradley was a tremendous athlete. <laughs> Bradley could have been a tremendous athlete. He just never chose to do it. Um, but uh, with, you know, with Raceland, he's he's always been frail. You know the the, ta- the test of of the towers of high sorcery uh, did not break his health. He was frail before that. Imagine having this big, hulking, incredibly handsome brother. They always talk about how handsome both twins are. You know, even though Raceland is frail and stuff, he's still a handsome man. And uh, you know, they're actually in, in in one of the books that we might read later. I was never a fan of these books, not because. Um, they weren't well written or anything. They just didn't quite tickle my fancy. There's uh, there's a series of books about Raceland and Caraman. One of them's called The Soul Forge. And the next one's Brother in Arms, Brothers in Arms. And it's, you know, they get into their childhood and Raceland liked a girl and gave her a flower or something. You know, was you know, was a kid and was clumsy. He didn't, you know, understand girls. So we could all can sympathize. And then he walks in on her and Caraman having sex. You know, because Caraman was you know, just like that. He was big and handsome and, you know, he slung it around. He was definitely well, like me. <laughs> Both of us. Yeah. Adonis's. Yeah. Um, they go to, uh, McKessa Carthod, who says she's not sailing today. Tannis, um, Something that was interesting that happens here is that uh, they want to see McKesta and she just tells them to go away. Or McQuesta, McKesta. I like to call her McKesta. It sounds better to me. Um, she has a first mate who's a Minotaur. And it got me thinking about just a Minotaur race on Crean and how fascinating they are. And there are a whole series of books about the Minotaurs who. Minotaurs. 
Minotaurs. I'm trying to figure out which one they are. There's Minotaur. There's uh, Centaurs. There's all kinds of Minotaurs are bull bullhead. Okay. Um, the Minotaurs of Kryn are don't look. They do have a certain. Well, they're of course they're depicted in different ways and look different and are described different. I always see them as looking vaguely uh, bull like, and of course there's no discussion. How's that one? That's very <laughs> Greek. Uh, look up Dragonlance Minotaurs, and they might have a better depiction. Um, in Kryn, they are an ogre race, like they're descended. Yeah, that's an awesome picture, actually. That actually is a little bovine for me. I don't think that they should look that that, but that is an awesome, awesome. I think it's Braun who painted that. Um, he's an Braum. I mean, he's an he's an he's a great artist. But um, yeah, let me see some of those others. I can tell that one right there to to your He's right. Reading a book is uh, well, Minotaurs are intelligent, and and this one? Uh, no, the one below it. That's from Tides of Blood, I think, which is Richard A. Knock. Dope ass helmet. Yeah, Richard. Uh, well, that's its horns, I believe. No, it's a helmet with some spikes on top. Between oh, neat. The, between the horns. One one thing I like is uh, the Minotaur race. Uh, yeah, some. Uh, I know we're going off tangents here, but hey, we got to fill two hours. Shut up. <laughs> um, if you don't like it, you start your own show. Kryn, we've discussed before that the elves always considered that they were the first, or thought they were the first race on Kryn. They were not. The ogres were the first race on Kryn, and remember, they started out as this beautiful race called the Erda. Just and, a bunch of Shreks and they're around. Um, no, ogres are terrifying. They're. Huge, hairy, uh, misshapen. Um, How you like that one? That's really two of them. Together. Yeah, that's just kind of sensual, if you ask me. Uh, but then, through because of their, they were so decadent and they were so evil that they were cursed by the gods to become these brutish, awful creatures, right? Well, after that happened, the passage of the Great Stone of Gargath. We've talked about, talked about that before. Uh, created a bunch of races it created the the kinder and the and the uh, dwarves from gnomes which if you ever suggested that to uh, a dwarf that he was related to either gnomes or kinder he Ogres. would kick you yeah that's you actually like pretty good depictions they would actually kick you in the nuts for that or worse um this passage also created the minotaurs they are not stupid like ogre races They're extremely intelligent they're also uh ambitious and powerful and they actually were taken as slaves by ogres which i always found very strange and they broke out of their bondage and now they uh are a seafaring race uh, and they live on mythos and Cothus, these two islands you know very a lot of greek names in kren um anyway cough is the name of the, of the is the name of her kof is the name of her um uh minotaur first mate and caraman we're going to go at it. I like Caraman. I think he's tough, but I wouldn't have given a, a, a bent penny for his, for his, uh, uh, chances against a, you know, Minotaur warrior in his prime. I mean, they're eight feet tall. They weigh 500 pounds. They're just gigantic. And they're, you know, and that's one thing I, I thought that, uh, uh, Weiss and Heckman didn't quite do to my satisfaction. You know, I'm sorry, you know, I, if they would ever hear this, especially Margaret Weiss, such a sweet lady, but, um, I thought they didn't depict the Minotaurs as, as these awesome hulking creatures that they should have, you know, they, they were, could be overcome by humans. Sometimes I didn't, I didn't get that, but anyway, um, 
Macesta then agrees to talk to Tannis, and then he, uh, he she sees that he she makes the comment where I said this earlier about him being uh, looking sick. She thinks that he looks like he's dying. That's how bad, and this lie is crushing him that bad. Um, and we get into a, a description from her point of view. Quote. Makesta helped Tannis to his feet, studying the half-elf with the same intense scrutiny she fixed on a man wanting to sign on as a crew member. She saw at once that the half-elf had changed drastically since she had seen him only four days before, when he and the big man behind him closed the bargain for passage aboard the Paracon. He looks like he's been through the abyss and back, probably in some sort of trouble, she decided ruefully. Ruefully. Well, I'm not getting him out of it. Not the risk of my ship. Blah, blah, blah. Um, she tells him... Um, then Tannis, tell, they go to her cabin, and she tells them that Barum, the story about Barum, and that the dragon Howard is looking for that they might know due to him. I don't think he lets that slip. That uh, that that Kittyara, the dragon Howard in town, knows that Barum is on one of these ships and will start searching them. And he basically tells her, "What do you think they're going to do to the crew that they find harboring this man? Do you think they're going to let you go?" No, the Dragon High Lords, they're likely going to kill you. They're at least going to enslave you or put you in prison. They are more likely going to kill you and just, you know, not bother with it. Because it's kind of a secret anyway. So, to her, this very smart, tough, I've always really liked Makesta Carthon. You can actually look up pictures of her. She's a really, you know, hot, very 70s looking uh, black lady. Got a big afro. It's really cool looking. Um, I think 70s was the peak for, for black lady. <laughs> God. I don't know how to answer that statement. Well, um, I'm being silly. I know you're being silly. I'm just saying I really don't know how to answer it. Like, not that you said anything bad. It's just, uh, I know it's funny. Here we go. Um, moving right along. Moving right along. Here's a, actually, I'm going to find a picture of Makesta. That's actually one of my favorite. Uh, that's a Larry Elmore. That's her Minotaur uh, crewman behind her. She is a very 70s looking black lady. Yeah, I always thought so. It's, it's, awesome. really, it's really cool looking. Um, but, and also, as you can see, he looks like an average size guy. He should be towering over her in like three times as wide, you know. Um, I never quite understood that. But uh, but then that, that Minotaur looks more like I think a Minotaur should. He looks vaguely bull-like. He doesn't look like a... Yeah, it looks more like a, just a big buff dude with a bull head. Yeah, and 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 yeah, I mean it's really Does he have does he have hooves? In that he doesn't, like he's wearing boots. Sometimes I think they, they address hooves. that sometimes by saying and I was get when I was going to write my book in Korean, I was going to say that there are different varieties of minotaurs. You you could have ones that have hooves and you can have ones that have feet. You know, they can be born either way and then you can have one that has one and then the other. You know, and they would be called something. What if their hands have hooves and they're like, well, I'm fucking useless. What am I doing here? <laughs> then they would kill you. I mean, the Minotaurs are not a race that would suffer weaklings. I've always said that they were very Klingon-like. They, and especially in Taodis, where they have their own empire, you know, they are extremely Klingon-like. They are settle things in the arena. You know, they've, they've adapted uh, fighting in their arena into a code of laws that, you know, if you seem to be guilty or the evidence is stocked against you, you get less weapons. I mean, it's a very complex, extreme. I think it was Zeb Cook created that world and, and did all these concepts. I would like to shake his hand and be like, man, you created one of the most towering works of fantasy that was never really used. You know, there were one series of books written in Taladis, which were good books, but they just didn't scratch the surface. But anyway, um, as I said, uh, 
Tannis has now told McKesta what's going on and they need to get out of town. Um, she's, of course, is, you know, a bit skeptical, but, uh, quote, McKesta eyed, eyed him warily. Could this be true? Or is he making all this up to force her to take him away from some danger? Watching him slump miserably over the table, McKesta swore softly. The ship's captain was a shrewd judge of men. She needed to be in order to control her rough and ready crew. And she knew the half element wasn't lying. At least, not much. She su- suspected there were things he wasn't telling. But the story about Barum, as strange as it seemed, had the ring of truth. She told him all about Barum. Um, it all made sense, she thought uneasily, cursing herself. She prided herself on her judgment, her good sense. Yet she had turned a blind eye to Barron's strangeness. Why? Her lip curled in derision. She liked him, admit it. He was a, like a child, cheerful, guileless. And so she had overlooked his, his unwillingness to go ashore, his fear of strangers, his eagerness to go work for a pirate when he refused to share in the loot they captured. McCasta sat a moment, getting the feel of her ship. Glancing outside, she watched the golden sun glint off the white caps, and then the sun vanished, swallowed by the lowering gray, gray clouds. It would be dangerous to taking the ship out but if the wind was right she agrees um you know they all get into discussion about you know barum and he says she's the key to to queen Takesis, the queen of darkness her her victory over uh Ancelon and probably possibly all of Crin herself. Um in Talita, she is actually not a uh a very popular god. I read uh there's another evil god called Hitical, who um is the main god over there. Um I could do a whole series on Talitus. Like uh the We can. Um no. I mean it's just it's oh I, I should say I could do a, a section of this show about all about Talitus and the different we could just devote realms one up to it. Well, we could do that. Um, well, it had to be a couple. I think it would have to be about three because there's so much history they made and all kind of stuff. But anyway, um, you know, but she's looking to conquer Ancelon and then the rest of uh, Kryn itself. So um, they go out to sea and they uh, – she even suggests that they could go to Mithras, uh, homeland of the Minotaurs. Um and here's a, a, a section I know of belabored minotaurs in this, but uh, a corn, uh, the minotaurs had not, even though they're considered an evil race, they had not sworn themselves to uh, try Queen Tachesis yet. They their price was high. They wanted to be um, control of the eastern continent of Ancelon, which that's a big piece of land. And she was like, well, you know, I, maybe I don't need them, you know, so. Uh, They uh, they go out to sea in the middle of this storm, and, and as anybody can tell you, going out in a storm, um, Tannis is sick um, in the boat, and he's more sick because of his guilt than he is because of seasickness. Um, they get to this thing called the Blood Sea of Istar. We've discussed the the uh, the nation of Istar before. They were. Um, this huge nation and they were good, but they had upset the balance where they were starting to declare that evil races deserve to die. And the good races like elves. And they said, men of course deserve to conquer everything and all that stuff. And then the God, the King priest of Istar basically demanded the gods do something. So they punished him. And as we've discussed before, um, one could get upset with the gods because they punished everybody for one man's sin, essentially. And they sent a meteorite and destroyed the nation of Istar and left behind it called the Blood Sea of Istar. Um, it's 
a giant maelstrom. Like, you know, the sea is eternally trying to fill it. You know, so it's a big whirlpool, of course. Storms rage above it, of course. Uh, um, we'll get into that. Um, you know, and also there's a storm following them anyway. So it's wasn't the safest thing, but they really didn't have a choice after what Tannis had said. So now they're fleeing um, and getting away. But uh, they start to, they look out over the Blood Sea. Um, Riverwind um, is something from his point here. Quote, I did not believe it, Riverwind said solemnly, shaking his head. I heard William tell of it, and I listened as I listened to his tales of sea dragons that swallow ships and women with the tales of fish instead of legs. But this, the barbarian plainsman shook his head, eyeing the blood-colored water uneasily. Do you suppose it's true that this is the blood of all those who died in Nistar when the fiery mountain struck the king priest temple? The golden moon asked softly, coming to stand by her and her husband. What nonsense, Maquessa snorted. Walking across the deck to join them, her eyes flickered constantly to make sh- flick constantly around to make certain that she was getting the most of out of her ship and her crew you've been listening to pig face william again she laughed he loves to frighten lubbers the water gets its color from soil washed up from the bottom remember this is not sand we're sailing over like the bottom of the ocean this used to be dry land the capital city of istar and the rich countryside around it when the fire mountain fell it split the land apart waves from the ocean rushed in creating a new sea now the wealth of istar lies far beneath the waves um You know, I always thought the punishment did not fit the crime with this. Um, I felt like something they skated over, like they get they, they you know, the, Tannis and them do question the gods, and you know, most people in this world question the gods as they do, and they do get into some discussions about that. But I never thought that, you know, it was never justified to me this steep penalty to all the people of, the, of basically of the world. Because it happened, and in, 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 as I said before, Anselm was struck by a bunch of smaller strikes of meteorites. Because it, 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 not only the not only Istar was hit, other meteors hit other parts of Anselm and created a lot of destruction, a lot of death, hurt a lot of innocent people. Talonis got hit by one giant, you know, uh, meteor in the center of the of the of the continent, and it created a giant sea of lava, like that's still there. And uh, is ever churning. Um, they had their own evil uh, empire. The impo- the old Aram had turned into, um, you know, something that was perverted too. So they try to justify it that way. But I just, I, I just, I always thought that, uh, you know, the the gods had a lot to answer for. So anyway, um, Riverwind says something about you know the what's keeping it stirred up and you know the the soul is having all that stuff McCasta answers him quote well he says quote even with the motion of the waves and the tides the heavy soil should settle more than it appears to have truly spoken barbarian McCasta looked at the tall handsome plains with admiration but then your people are farmers as so I've heard and you know a lot about and know a lot about soil if you put into your hand into the water you can feel the grit of the dirt supposedly there are maelstrom in the center of the blood sea that whirls with such force it drags the soil up from the bottom but whether that is true or another one of pig faces stories I cannot say I have never seen it nor have any, I have any I've sailed with and I've sailed these waters since I was a child learning the craft from my father no one i ever knew was foolish enough to sail into the storm that hangs over the center of the sea remember we said there was a giant storm that's constantly over the blood sea of Istar. um 
at that moment they look back over their shoulder essentially they've been looking and now they see uh the the minotaur crewman is basically spotted at first i guess minotaurs have sharp eyes too it would make sense um and sees that says that there's something following them and it turns out there is there are dragons following them kitty ara has discovered which ship it was and is now pursuing them not good news um especially had it been even somebody like verminard i don't think it would have gone to the lengths that she does um he's dead of course uh killed by Sturm and um maybe tannis or caraman i can't quite remember at this point that's been two books ago um i remember the giant dragon high lord with the he was huge muscle guy and was beating the shit out of him until they until gold moon had cast a spell i mean it's just it's a good fight it's one of the best parts of dragons of autumn twilight but um yeah he was uh he was brutal and and he had his usefulness but he wasn't terribly intelligent and i would not guess that he was that ambitious kitty R is as ambitious as loose for himself and she knows that Barum, the Everman, the Green Gemstone Man, is the key to everything. And Tekhesis will reward her, basically ruling the entire planet if she does. You know, under her, of course, it would be, you know, Tekhesis is really running things, but Kitty R gets to run. I guess she'd be the day-to-day operations as opposed to the, the owner, you know, so put in those kind of terms. She's the uh, regional manager. Yeah, well, I would say more she's the assistant to the regional She's manager. the VP, you uh, know, so it would be, you know. Um, the COO. Although I would think that would come with a, a higher price than she is aware of that she is probably not going to be prepared to pay. But she doesn't care. She uh, has been seduced and now is in league with evil. So, but she's coming after him. Quote, a flight of dragons, said Raceland, coming to stand by his brother. Five, I believe. Dragons, McKesta breathed. For a moment, she clutched the rail with trembling hands, then she whirled around. Set all sail, she commanded. The crew start, stared westward. Their eyes and minds looked on, locked into the approaching terror. McKesta raised her voice and shouted her order again, her only thoughts on her beloved ship. The strength and calmness in her voice penetrated the first faint feelings of dragon fear creeping over the crew. Instinctively, a few sprang to carry out their orders, then more followed. Korath, with his... Well, his name's Korath, not Koth. With his whip helped as well, striking briskly at any man who didn't move quickly enough to suit him. Within moments, the great ships sail. The, sail, the great sails billowed out. Lines creaked ominously. The ringing sound a whining tune. Um, then things start to uh, line up. They're wondering why they're being chased. Um, Rates on comments that. Uh, Tannis was followed. Tannis denies it. Um, he didn't, uh, obviously, uh, um, I can't remember what I was saying. I was looking at this kind of the text here and lost my way. Um, He doesn't know that he was followed, I, I think, what I was going to say by the Draconium. So he thought they got away scot-free. They didn't. Um, and then uh, when it's discussed, Barum hears what they're talking about, and he basically goes berserk, and he just kind of spins the tiller right into the maelstrom because he doesn't want to be taken. Um, 
McKesta, of course, tries to stop him. Quote, Mac, McKesta, had nearly reached him when, shaking his head like a wounded animal, Baron spun the wheel. No, Baron, McKesta shrieked. Baron's sudden move brought the small ship around so fast he nearly sent it under. The mizzen mast snapped with a strain as the ship healed. Rigging, shrouds, sails, and men plummeted to the deck or fell into the blood sea. Grabbing hold of, grabbing hold of Mac, Carafe dragged her clear of the falling mast. Caraman caught his brother in his arms and hurled him to the deck, covering Raceland's frail body with his own as a tangle of rope and splintered wood crashed over them. Sailors tumbled the deck or slabbed up against the bulkheads. From down below, they could hear the sound of cargo breaking free. The companions clung to the ropes or whatever they could grab, hanging on desperately as it seemed Baron would run the ship under. Sails flapped horribly like dead birds' wings. The rigging went slack. The ship floundered helplessly. Um... He's McKesta sees he's like I said that he's stealing steering them into the maelstrom, taking them right into the blood sea. Um and once he's made that you have to understand, I mean, I don't know that much about ships, but once the, the sail and especially when they're caught in the uh maelstrom itself and the water, once you've made that decision, there's no getting out. Doesn't matter how strong your arms are, you're not gonna pull yourself out of that. Um McKesta says, well, you know, this could be our only hope to get away from them. We'll stay, try to skirt the maelstrom, you know, and use its momentum to slingshot us out of this. Um, and uh, we get, uh, again, Weiss, Weiss Hinkman are good at describing awful things. So, quote, a jagged flash of lightning tore through the gray curtain. The mist parted, revealing a gruesome sight. Black clouds, clouds swirled in the roaring wind. Green lightning crackled, charging the air with the astrid, acrid smell of sulfur. The red water heaved and tossed. Whitecaps bubbled on, a sur- on the surface like froth in the mouth of a dying man. That's a pretty good line. Um, no one could move for an instant. They could only stare, feeling petty and small against the awesome forces of nature. Then the wind hit them. The ship pitched and tossed, dragged over by the trailing, broken mast. Sudden rain slashed down. Hair clattered on the wooden deck. Hail clattered on the wooden deck. The gray cal- c- uh, curtain closed around them once more. Um, he... They think they might have lost him. Um, but Tannis knows Kitty R. And he knows what length she's going to go to to recover Barum. Quote, Tannis, his eyes looking to the west, knew that nothing looking to the west knew that nothing short of death itself would stop the High Lord's pursuit. Sure enough, the sailors' cheers changed to cries of shock when the head of a blue dragon suddenly cleaved the gray clouds, its fiery eyes blazing red with hatred, its fang mouth gaping open. The dragon flew closer still, its great wings holding steady even though buffeted by gusts of wind and rain and hail. A dragon High Lord sat upon the blue dragon's back. The High Lord held no weapon, Tana saw bitterly. She needed no weapon. She would take Barum, then her dragon would destroy the rest of them. Tannis bowed his head, sick with the knowledge of what would come, sick with knowledge that he was responsible. Yes, he is. Made a huge mistake. Um, but again, the mistake he made wasn't to sell them out or anything like it. The mistake he made because he loved Kitty Ara, and he he was honestly conflicted. I mean, uh, I'm sure he was tempted by her offer, which was that they should find Barum together and they could rule together. I'm sure Kitty Ara at that moment thought that was going to be a thing, but eventually the kind of person she is, she would tire of him too and toss him aside, especially if she had all that power and access to anybody she wanted. She is not capable of being in a faithful relationship with anyone, except maybe later on she is in a faithful relationship, but it is not one of her choosing, and we'll get into that. So, um, It's actually a very interesting story and fitting ending for her. 
Heath, but Tannis, uh, Tannis thinks that maybe they were able to escape. And the Maelstrom's pretty tough. The dragons have a hard time staying aloft. They're going to have to either give up the pursuit or fall in the blood scene themselves. Um, then he looks over and sees Barum. Quote, the wind had blown Barum's shirt open. Even though the gray curtain of rain, even through the gray curtain of rain, Tannis could see the green jewel embedded in the man's chest glow more brilliantly than the green lightning, a terrible beacon shining through the storm. Barum, and, Barum did not notice. He did not even see the dragon. His eyes stared with fixed intensity into the storm as he steered the ship farther and farther into the blood sea of Istar. It's a beacon to the dragon, too. Um, Then the uh, dragon gets closer and uh, Tana sees into Kitty Hara's eyes. And there's a terrible moment when he sees what she's going to do. He, he said the eyes that were basically describes the eyes that were engaged with him with such passion just a day before are now will kill him and everybody aboard the ship, including her own brothers with little afterthought, you know, it's what she's pursuing. See, I mean, I can tell you're not liking her either. She's she's not likable, especially when you've got somebody like Lorana, who's, you know, she, she kind of sucks. She's a warrior woman, and she Lorana is too. But Lorana, I, I mean, we'll get into her briefly, but we don't we don't touch a lot on her this time. As I said, this part of the book would be more fitting a Dragons of Winter Night than it is Dragons of Spring Dawning. There's not a lot of hope at this point. So, and it gets worse. Um, <laughs> Um, quote, never taking your eyes from him, Kitty R, that is, the dragon high lord raised a gloved hand. It might have been a signal of the dragon to dive down upon them. It might have been a farewell to Tannis. It definitely wasn't that. He's fooling himself. He never knew because at that moment, a shattered voice shouted above the roar of the storm with unbelievable power. Kitty R, a race hung cried. Shoving Karaman aside, the, the mage ran toward the dragon. Slipping on the wet deck, his red robes whipped about him in the wind that was blowing stronger every moment. A sudden gust tore the hood from his head. Rain glistened on his metallic colored skin. His hourglass eyes gleamed golden through the gathering darkness of the storm gave her some pause um not much she's still gonna do what she's gonna do um it was actually a part i didn't i, I you know sometimes in the in the shuffle you lose things you should have highlighted and this is one of the things i should have highlighted because it's it's a very good uh, passage quote to get Barum, she would have to kill the little brother who had learned all of what he knew about swordship from her. She would have to kill his frail twin. She would have to kill a man she had once loved. Then Tana saw her eyes grow cold, and he shook and he shook his head in despair. It didn't matter. She would kill her brother. She would kill him. Tana remembered her words: "Capture Barum, and we will have Kryn at our feet. The dark Kryn will reward us beyond anything we ever dreamed." She would sell her soul. She has sold her soul for this, and nobody's going to matter. Nobody matters. Um, she would be, I would consider a sociopath. She has no real emotions. She's, um, and people, some people who like Kitty are going to listen to this and think that I'm uh, unfairly, um, you know, classifying her, all that stuff. And they know her history. And there's a lot of people like Kitty are as a character. She's, she's a very powerful anti-hero, you know, but there's nothing truly heroic about her. I mean, yes, she's good with a sword. And in earlier books, um, you know, she's depicted and, you know, I like her. But, you know, and again, I admire her in a lot of ways, but I do not like her. Same way her brother. I do not like Raceland very much in some ways, but I admire him. Um, but then now the truth is out. 
Quote, Tannis waited until everyone was safely inside the tiny cabin. Then he slept against the wooden door, unable to turn around, unable to face them. He had seen the haunted look in Caraman's eyes as the big man staggered past. He had seen the exultant gleam in Raceland's eyes. He heard the Goldman, Goldman weeping quietly, and he wished he might die on this spot before he had to face her. But that was not to be. Slowly he turned around. Riverwind stood next to Goldmoon, his face dark and brooding as he braced himself between ceiling and deck. Tika bit her lip, tears sliding down her cheeks. Poor Tika. Tannis stared by the, stayed by the door, his back against it, staring at his friends mutely. For long moments, no one said, said a word. All that could be heard was the storm, the waves crashing onto the deck. Water, water trickled down on them. They were wet and cold and shaking with fear and sorrow and shock. I, I'm sorry, Tannis began licking his salt-coated lips. His throat hurt. He could barely speak. I wanted to tell you. So that's where you were these four days, Caraman said in a soft, low voice, with our sister, our sister, the Dragon High Lord. Um... The person most angry about this is Caraman. He's actually surprised me at this point because he gets really mad. Like he comes toward Tannis. He, I think he might hit him. And if that guy hits you, you stay hit. So <laughs> um, I think that Caraman, in, in his capacity to be so loving and everything, still loves his sister. But he's no fool. That they they depict him as a goofball. He is a goofball, but he's not stupid. He and he and he can. His brother is a different matter because he's always been his protector and he's codependent. But he's a very astute judge of character. He knows what his sister is, and he knows that Tannis put him all in this position. So he's extremely angry. Um, I didn't really highlight Tannis is. He tells him what happened with getting attacked and Kitty R saved him and all this stuff. And then you know, basically he couldn't finish his thought. So about what happened after. Um she took me back to the inn is what he's saying, and then Caraman, you know, finishes it for him. Quote, and you spent four days and nights in the loving embrace of a dragon high lord, Caraman said, his voice rising in fury, lurching to his feet, he stabbed an accusing finger at Tannis. Then after four days, you needed a little rest. So you remembered us and came calling to make certain we were still watching, waiting for you. And we were just like the bunch of trusting lame brains. And then Tannis starts to defend himself. Quote, all right. So I was with Kitty R. Tannis shouted suddenly angry. Yes, I loved her. I don't expect you to understand any of you, but I never betrayed you. I swear by the gods. And he didn't really. Um, when she left to Slamnia, I was, the, it was the first chance I had to escape and I took it. A draconian followed me. Apparently under Kit's orders. I may be a fool, but I'm not a traitor. That's what it was. She didn't trust him, so her lack of trust gained her something, but he didn't betray him and wouldn't have. He wrote her that letter and was trying to get away and everything. I for, you know, you can forgive him for that. You know, he shouldn't have done that, but he did what he did for love, as we said before. Raceland's not buying it. He says pa, P-A-H, I don't know what that means, and spit on the floor. Um Then he he tell, Tannis tells him that what what she offered when they find Barum they're going to be you know given rule over Kryn and all that stuff that shows you what kind of person Tannis is that he considered it of course because anybody would consider that offer you're going to have endless wealth you're going to do whatever you want you're going to do and um and Raceland is the one who says don't tell us you didn't consider it Raceland says it quote Tannis opened his mouth then fell silent he knew his guilt was as plain on his face as a beard no true elf could grow that was a little bit much he choked then put his hand over his eyes to block out their faces I loved her he said brokenly all these years I refused to see what she was remember we talked about 
And even when I knew, couldn't help myself. You love his eyes went to river wind and you turn into Caraman. He's talking about Gold Moon and Tiki, respectively. The boat pitched again. Tannis gripped the side of the desk deck desk. There's a desk in there again. As he felt the deck cant away beneath his feet. What would you have done? For five years she's been in my dreams. He stopped. They were quiet. Caraman's face was unusually thoughtful. Riverwind's eyes were on Gold Moon. And then he uh, he continues. When she was gone, Tannis continued, his voice soft and filled with pain. I lay in her bed and I hated myself. You may hate me now, but you cannot hate me as much as I loathe and despise what I have become. I thought of Lorana. And um, of course he did. Lorana is, you know, I'm firmly in team Lorana. If there's a, you know, a thing. Uh, yeah, and he, she's a good good. If, if we're making t-shirts, we're getting Team Lorana. Absolutely. Just got to figure out how to spell it. <laughs> I can spell it. Okay. Um, I mean, it's right there for you. So. Right. Um. They look at him. Of course, they don't know what to say. They they understand what he's saying and sympathize. Of course, they they know he didn't betray him. They be- don't believe that. But um, but he has put him in a spot, and it's gonna it might cost them all their lives. Um, then the Minotaur, uh, first mate says, McKesta told him to come up, come up on deck to find out what's going on. Quote, Tannis cast one swift glance around at his friends. Riverwind's face was dark. His eyes met Tannis's and held them, but there was no light in them. The plainsman had long dis- distrusted all who were not human. Only after weeks of danger faced together had he become to love and trust Tannis as a brother. Had all that been shattered? Tannis looked at him steadily. Riverwind lowered his gaze and without a word started to walk past Tannis. Then he stopped. You're right, my friend, he said, glancing at Goldmoon, who was rising to her feet. I have loved. Without another word, he turned abruptly and went up on deck. Um... It's pretty much a forgiveness, I would think. Um, he understands. Um, I always thought the barbarians would be kind of fatalist. It's a pretty uh, rough life. They understand that there's going to be, you know, in the words of the dude, strikes and gutter balls. You know, it's just the way it is. Uh, Riverwind, I really started to like, uh, especially towards the end of this book. They didn't. They had a book from his point of view I never read. Douglas Niles actually wrote it. We'll get into some Douglas Niles books. He wrote some pretty good stuff. Um, but um, I always admired the way they depicted his love for Gold Moon. He really, you know, even though she's a mighty whitey, as we've discussed before, um, there's no Native American woman that would ever be born with blonde hair. Um, I know they're not Native American, but as we discussed before, they are based on Native Americans. Um but their their love is a very powerful thing. Behold, it gets worse with that too. I mean, as I said, we're, we've got we've got a tough row to hoe here for a minute. Um, then uh, what McKess has to tell him is they're caught in the maelstrom now. The boat is not getting out of the blood sea of Istar. Quote, the Paracon hurtled forward, skimming along on top of the water as lightly as a bird, but it was a bird with its wings clipped, riding the swirling tide of a watery cyclone into a blood-red darkness. The terrible force pulled the seawater smooth until they looked like painted glass. A hollow, eternal roar swelled from the black depths, even as the storm clouds circled in endlessly above it, as if all nature were caught in the maelstrom, hurtling, hurtling to its own destruction. That's a pretty good uh, description, I always thought. Um, nobody's under any illusion about what's going to happen. This is doom. So, um, quote, 
Everyone on board the doomed ship stood silently, their eyes wide with the horror of what they saw. They were still some distance from the center. The whirlpool was miles and miles in diameter. Smoothly and swiftly, the water flowed. Above them and around them, the wind still howled. The rain still beat upon their faces. But it didn't matter. They didn't notice it anymore. All they saw was what they were being was that they were being carried relentlessly in the center of the darkness. Um, Barum at this point, even it affects him. He tries to pull the boat out of it. It's not happening. Um, then one of the worst things that Raceland has ever done happens. Everybody wondering where he is. Everybody else is up on deck watching this approaching doom. You know, they're all, I would imagine that Gold Moon and Riverwind are holding hands. You know, Tika and Caramon are probably holding hands, just, you know, knowing that their their uh, doom is approaching and just trying to give each other some warmth and strength, you know, through this really awful thing. None of us facing our death are going to be brave. I don't think that that's really true. You can appear to be brave. You can face it bravely. But nobody's brave in the in the face of their in the face of their own doom. So that's not what I'm. That's not nobody's fearless. I should say in the face of their own doom. That's a, that's a better description. Yeah. Um, unless unless you're a madman, you know. I've been listening to as I said, I'm a huge Dan Carlin fan. And I've had to endure these stories of these uh, soldiers trooping to their certain death. And the way that some of them couldn't face it and fall down and collapse, and the way some of them just kind of shrug their shoulders, and they're not without fear, but they're just fatalist. So, um, turns out Raceland has got the dragon orb, and he tells him in no uncertain terms what he's going to do with it. Quote, Raceland stood in the center of the small cabin. He had lit a candle and a lamp clamped to the bulkhead. The flame made the mage's face glisten like a metal mask. His eye flared with golden fire. That's a very good piece of writing. I will say that every now and then, because as a person who wants to be a writer, when I notice a particularly good piece of writing, I like to, I like to, you know, talk about it. I think they have some truly great moments. They have some moments that are like, eh, that was a little, like I said before, that was a little weak or that was, you know, a little bit much, but Weiss and Hickman don't have those moments very often at all. Um, and remember, as I said, this is very early. This is only their third book. Um, but I continue, quote, In his hands, Raceland held the dragon orb, their prize from Sylvanesti. It had grown, Tannis saw. It was now the size of, of a child's ball. A myriad of colors swirled within us. I stumbled there because they didn't put an of in. Tannis grew dizzy watching and wrenched his gaze away. In front of Raceland stood Carolyn, the big warrior's face as white as him had seen his corpse in the Sylvanesi dream when the warrior, warrior lay dead at his feet. Raceland tells him not to come near him, and Tannis asks him, what are you doing? And he basically tells him, quote, I am fleeing certain death, half-elf, the mage laughed unpleasantly, the strange laughter Tannis had heard only twice before. What do you think I am doing? Pretty shitty thing. Um... The dragon orb can take him out of there. It's the most powerful magical on Kryn, of course. It's not like it can't do a teleportation, but he has no intention of trying to teleport them all. He's just going to teleport himself. Pretty awful. Um, and Tannis asked him, can he do it for all of us? And he said, Tannis, I mean, Raceland says, maybe, but I'm not going to chance it. I'm just going to take myself out of here. And he basically flings the worst thing he can say at him. He said, um, you led, you led them into this. You deal with it. He's got a point, but 
there are degrees of things here. Tannis led them into it, trying to get them out of something. He didn't lead them into it because he wanted them to get hurt, and that included Raceland. They all loved Raceland to a certain degree, of course. I mean, they had been his companions for years. They'd grown up with him. Even I, at this point, as much as I admire him and like him later on, really hate him at this point. Um, Tannis tries to play the last card he can. Quote, all right, Tennis said, breathing heavily. You'd kill me without a second thought, but you won't harm your brother. Caraman, stop him. Caraman took a step toward his twin. Raceling raised the silver dagger warningly. Don't do it, my brother, he said softly. Come no closer. And then uh, they get into the story that they wouldn't talk about from the test of the Tower of High Sorcery. The, the test they give you you don't know it's illusion. It's an illusion about what you're going through. But the, the, the choices you make and the consequences are very real. That's what shattered Raceland's health. They, but, the, but you'll come to find later, he could have not, that could have not happened to him. The leaders, the, three, the heads of the three orders, the white, black, and red robes, broke his health on purpose, I think. To teach him some humility, because they were all already terrified of how powerful he was. He could become an archmage, and there's not been one since Fist and Dantilus, and he was terrifyingly powerful, like powerful enough to challenge the gods. You know, he's you know he's a very destabilizing force. So they thought maybe if I taught him some humility by breaking his health and showing him some of the consequences of what he's doing that they could avert what they know is coming. They're not, they're the smartest people. They'd be considered the learned people, the learned people in Kryn. These, there are no towers of house sorcery in Kryn Talitus, as, as we said before, they're pretty much just an Ancelon. But, they're the most intelligent people. They know things. They read books. They are nerds. They are the nerds of this world. But they that makes them incredibly intelligent and have a lot of foresight. Plus, some of them can actually see the future. They have foretellings. And they see what racism is going to become. And it, Scares the shit out of him as it should. Um, but in the test to try to teach him the price of his power, they gave him the illusion that he was going to kill his brother, and he did. Without hesitation, he killed Caraman. If there's any person that a broken health sociopath loved, this guy, it's his brother. But it's twisted into something awful, too. Envy, hatred, all these things are wrapped up with his love as a brother. We get into that. Um, but they also did something that I thought was a little bit much, even for them. They made what Raceland, they made Caraman watch. Jesus. Quote, I watched him kill me, Caraman cried wretchedly. They made me watch so that I would understand him. The big, man, the big man's head dropped in his hands. His body convulsed with a shudder. I do understand, he sobbed. I understood then. I'm sorry. Just don't go without me, Race. You're so weak. You need me. No longer, Caraman whispered with a soft sigh. I need you no longer. And then we continue. Quote, don't make him come near me, Tannis, Raceland said, his voice gentle, as if he read the half-elf's thoughts. I assure you I'm capable of this. What I've sought all my life is within my grasp. I will not let nothing stop me. Look at Cameron's face, Tannis. He knows. I killed him once. I can do it again. Farewell, my brother. The mage put both hands upon the dragon orb and held it up to the light of the flaming candle. The color swirled madly in the orb, flaring brilliantly. A powerful magical aura surrounded the mage. 
Let's see. Fighting his fear, Tannis tensed his body to make a desperate attempt to stop Raceland, but he could not move. He heard Raceland chanting strange words. The glaring, whirling bright glue so bright it pierced his head. He covered his eyes with his hands, but the light burned right through his flesh, searing his brain. The pain was intolerable. He stumbled back against the doorframe, hearing Caraman cry out in agony beside him. He heard the big man's body fall to the floor with a thud. Then all was still. The cabin plunged into darkness. Trembling, Tannis opened his eyes. For a moment, he could see nothing but the afterimage of a giant red globe imprinted on his brain. Then his eyes became accustomed to the chill dark. The candle guttered, hot wax dripping onto the wooden floor of the cabin to form a white puddle near where Caraman lay, cold and unmoving. The warrior's eyes were wide open, staring blankly into nothingness. Raceland was gone. Um... It'd be bad enough for all this to go on, but then they really have to turn the knife. Uh, the writers I'm talking about, because then they take you to um, Tika, staying on the deck, watching all this happening. She doesn't know what's going on below, but she sees her death approaching. She wasn't a warrior, you have to remember. She was a barmaid. She didn't face death like Tannis or Raceland or Cameron. Raceland faced death virtually every day because of his health, but Caraman going into battles and thinking, you know, knowing sometimes they're not going to come out, you know, that they've been lucky thus far. As I said, she was a barmaid. So, She's seen some awful things and fought some battles and distinguished herself. I mean, I'm not taking anything away from the girl, but she hasn't had a lifetime of this. So to her, it must be especially terrifying. Um, and uh, I'll read a little bit from from that quote. Take away and sit on the deck of the Paracon, staring into the blood red sea and trying very hard to keep from crying. You must be brave, she told herself over and over. You've learned to fight bravely in battle. Caraman said so. Now you must be brave about this. We'll be together at last at the end. He mustn't see me cry. He's talking about Caraman. Um, he's denied her love for... Um, because he really loves her. I mean, he's... We've talked before. Caraman wasn't shy about slinging it. But with Tika, it was different. You know, he really did love her and always had, really. And he knows he couldn't. It's really kind of a noble thing. He knows he couldn't give her what she wants when it comes to them because of Raceland, because Raceland needed him so bad. Well, you saw that got him, you know, so. uh, Very sad thing. I've always uh, thought so that, uh, you know, Teague is kind of the everyman in a lot of, you know, Tannis is usually, but she's more of a regular person in this thing. You know, sometimes when they see show things from her point of view, that's a good plot device. And it's not just a plot device. It's a, it's a, an effective writing tool. I'll say. So, um, Tannis goes up and tells him what's going on. And, uh, uh, Goldman goes down to comfort, uh, comfort Caraman quote, Goldman laid her gentle hands upon the big man, murmuring his name so softly those could not hear it above the rush of the wind. At her touch, however, Caraman shivered, then began to shake violently. Tegan knelt beside him, holding his hand in hers. This is this is tough stuff. Still staring straight ahead, Caraman began to cry silently, tears spilling down his cheeks from wide open staring eyes. He's blind at this point. Uh, Goldmoon's eyes glimmered with her own tears, but she stroked his forehead and kept calling to him as a mother calls a lost child. That's rough. You know, just trying to... Um, Then they all, uh, they have a moment where Tannis and Riverwind are talking, and Tannis is tearing himself up for this. Um, 
Riverwind tries to comfort him, saying, you know, this is what the gods, you know, the gods do for us, and very fatalistic. The barbarians are, accept life and death more starkly than an elf would, of course, because their lives are much shorter and more, more violent. But um, Tannis, not hearing it, quote, damn the gods, Tannis cried viciously. Lifting his head to stare at his friend, he struck his clenched fist on the ship's rail. It was me, my choosing. How often are those nights when she and I were together and I held her in my arms? How often did I tell myself it would be so easy to stay there with her forever? I can't condemn Raceland. We're very much alike, he and I, both destroyed by an all-consuming passion. As we discussed before, it is kind of similar, but... Riverwind answers, quote, You haven't been destroyed, Tannis, Riverwind said. Gripping the half-out shoulders in his strong hands, a stern-faced plainsman forced Tannis to face him. You did not fall victim to your passion, as did the mage. If you had, you would have stayed with Kittyara. You left her, Tannis. I left her, Tannis said barely. I sneaked out like a thief. That's basically his... Uh his thing is that he didn't confront her. I should have confronted her. I should have told her the truth about myself. She would have killed me then, but you would have been safe. You and the others would have, could have escaped. You and the others... How much easier my death would have been. Sorry, I stumbled there. How much easier my death would have been, but I didn't have the courage. Now I've brought us to this, the half-elf said, wrenching himself free of Riverman's grip. I've failed, not only myself, but all of you. Um, Riverwind is, still loves Tannis. I mean, he was upset with him, of course, but uh, this is a very touching part of the book, but also something, again, kind of a soul crusher. Quote, Tannis, my brother, you made your choice to walk this road in the end of the last home and solace when you came to Goldmoon's aid. In my pride, I would have refused your help, and both she and I would have died. Because you could not turn from us in our need, we, we brought the knowledge of the ancient gods. Basically, he's trying to tell them we're going to die, but we've brought something into the world that's going to survive us, and that's okay. Uh... We brought healing. We brought hope. Remember what the forest master told us? We do not grieve for those who fulfill their purpose in life. We have fulfilled my purpose, my friend. Who knows how many lives would it, we would have, we have touched? Who knows but this, this hope will lead to a great victory. For us, it seems the battle has ended. So be it. We lay down our swords only, only that others may pick them up and fight on. I really admire that, that uh, sentiment. Um, then the knife gets turned even deeper. Tannis basically tells him that, you know, those are pretty words and everything, but he's like, well, but how can you look at Goldmoon and know that, you know, your life together, you were just married and you're not going to have all this time to do, you're not going to have children. And that's when we get to the tough part. Quote, a swift spasm of pain crossed Riverwind's face. He turned his head to hide it, but Tannis, watching him closely, saw the pain and suddenly understood. So he was destroying that too. The half-elf shut his eyes in despair. Goldmoon and I weren't going to tell you. You had enough to worry about, Riverwind said. Our, our baby would have been born in the autumn. He murmured. In the time when the leaves in the Valen woods turned red and golden as they were when Goldmoon and I came into solace that day carrying the blue crystal staff. That's tough. And if you, you know, she's pregnant and she was going to have their baby and, you know, a year from when they met Tannis and came to the end of the last home and all that stuff. Um, and Tannis begins to just break down sobs, you know, as I would probably, you know, it's a, it's a, it's one thing to know you've doomed yourself. It's another thing to know you've doomed your friends, but to doom their unborn baby that they would have loved because these two people love each other more than anything to know that you have destroyed a life that didn't even get to get lived yet. And I know we'll get into an abortion question in there or whatever, but, um, <laughs> but I'm just saying that, you know, it, that would be something else again, especially to an elf where all life was sacred. And make no mistake, if elves were in our world, they would be horrified by the practice of abortion. 
I'm pro-choice, so we won't get into that discussion. But anyway, um, then Tannis tells him, quote, the Valen Woods we know are dead now, Tannis. Well, no, I'm sorry. This is uh, everyone talking. He continued in a hushed voice. We could have shown the child only burned and rotted stumps. He's basically trying to qualify, you know, this awful thing. But now the child will see the Valen Woods that God's meant them to be in a land where the trees live forever. Do not grieve, my friend, my brother. You help bring knowledge of the gods back to the people. You must have faith in those gods. Um. They go, they're now getting sucked into the center of the maelstrom. Um, but then, out of nowhere, uh, Kitty Ara comes brailing out of the clouds on her dragon. Um, quote, And then Kitty Ara was shouting above the storm, pointing at Tannis. Sky's fiery gaze turned on him. Raising his arm, arm as if he could ward off the dragon, Tannis looked up in the enraged eyes of the beast, who was fighting madly to control his flight in the whipping winds. This is life. The half-elf found himself thinking, seeing the dragon's claws eyes above him. This is life, to live, to be carried out of this horror. For an instant, Tannis felt himself suspended in midair as the bottom dropped out of his world. He was conscious only of shaking his head wildly, screaming incoherently. The dragon and the water him at the same time. All he could see was blood. Um, that's after he... Um, Barum had just gone over the side of the ship, so Kiara's been denied her prize, and the whole ship's going under. Um, obviously, as we're getting into these books, um, I don't think it's a spoiler to say we don't lose these characters now. Um, but we didn't know that reading these books, and you know, we weren't old enough to understand that that's not the way drama works, that you can't have an entire rest of the book with half the characters gone. Um, but it was good enough and still is good enough that people listening to this, if you're into this show at all, you're going to be horrified about these things going on. You know, we're getting ready to, uh, uh, an awful whirlpool is getting ready to suck half the characters that we love down into it. One of the characters has betrayed his friends and gone away. As I said, this is dragons of winter night fodder. And of course, at the end, we have to get it from Tika's point of view, because it wouldn't be a full, fully turned knife without it. Quote, Tika crouched beside Karaman, her fear of death lost in her concern for him. But Karaman wasn't even aware of her presence. He sat out into the darkness, tears coursing down his face, his hands clenched into fists, repeating two words over and over in a silent litany. In agonizing dreamlike slowness, the ship balanced on the edge of the swirling water, as if the very wood of the vessel itself hesitated in fear. Bacesta joined her frail ship in its finally des- desperate struggle for life, lending her own inner strength, trying to change the laws of nature by force of will alone. But it was useless. When a final heartbreaking shudder, the paracon slipped over the edge into the swirling, roaring darkness. Timber cracked, mass fell. Men were flung, screaming from the listing decks as the blood-red blackness sucked the paracon down to its gaping maw. After all was gone, two words lingered like a benediction, my brother. That's what he was saying. Um, we then get into, after that, we think all these characters dead. Race on his teleported himself. To Palanthus, um, that city that Sturm died defending, you know, the High Claris Tower, or, uh, you know, where he. Kitty R has a lot to answer for. She killed Sturm. She uh, has caused all this pain and destruction, you know. Um, you know, uh, it's just, uh, it's, it's pretty tough. But um, at the beginning of this chapter, where Raceland 
appears we have a character introduced that I knew I was going to have to have a big discussion about. His name is Astinus of Palanthus. He's this chronicler. He's this, uh, he's a human, I guess. Um, he's truly immortal. Um, he writes down the entire history of Kryn, does nothing but writing the entire time. Um, he's, I think, one of the best ways to describe what he looked like is, to me, you know, I, this is something I'll do later, is to describe who I think should play him in a movie or something like that. John Malkovich would be an excellent choice. A young John Malkovich would be an excellent choice for Astinus of Palanthus. Very cold, can be very polite, um, can show moments of warmth, but usually not. Um, and when you annoy him, that look he's going to give you is going to chill you, you know? And that's basically what happened. One of his, um, um, we get a description of him at the beginning of the chapter. Quote, Astinus says Palanthus, or Astinus, whatever, sat in his study. His hand guided the quill pen he held in firm, even strokes. The bold, crisp writing flowing from that pen could be read clearly, even at a distance. Astinus filled a sheet of parchment quickly, rarely pausing to think. Watching him, one had the impression that his thoughts flowed from his head straight into the pen and flow out onto the paper, so rapidly did he write. The flow was interrupted only when he dipped the quill in ink, but this, too, had become such an automatic motion to Astinus that it interrupted him as little as the dotting of an I or crossing of a T. Um... Uh, this guy comes in. It's basically one of his retainers, I guess, or uh, assistant. Uh, he's actually uh, uh, his name's Bertram, and he's in um, he's in, he's in other books, and he's always very harried. He's very hates to interrupt Astinus. You know, he's just this. He can't, probably came from a rich family, and you know, loved books and wanted to work in the library, and is just absolutely in complete awe, as the rest of City Planthus is of Astinus. Everybody knows Astinus is immortal. There. are Debates over whether he is the god Gillian, the gray god who is the head god of neutrality. That's not true, but I think the description is that he is Gillian's son, like that he uh, is the son of a god, and uh, that his mom was immortal, and um, that he this is his job to re- re- record all these things. And he says rightly that later on, when the world is destroyed, that it will be him and the gaping maw of destruction while he's writing about the destruction, then he'll be destroyed too. He'll be the last thing. He was the first one to open his eyes and the last one to close them. So he's seen all these things. He's seen uh, the Greystone of Gargath create gnomes and dwarves. He's seen the elves open their eyes for the first time. He's seen the, I mean, even in a fantasy world, the, the gaping measure of time that he... Uh, you know, especially a person like me who grew up with Kryn and knows and knows the world back to front and read its history. You know, he's seen things like the Urda become the ogres. He's seen all these things. It's pretty, pretty amazing character. I've always, I always liked him pretty well, even though he's just a regular guy who could just write. Um, then Bertram interrupts and tells him that there is a dying man on his doorstep on the uh, the uh, library of Palanthus. And um, uh, Astinus writes this quote This day as above restful hour Climbing 29 that's a measure of time A young man died on our doorstep He doesn't make mistakes So this is a foregone conclusion Or is it You know uh, You know he Rachel is going to die And um, 
he has come he the spell has drained him so much the teleportation spell is a very powerful spell especially using the dragon orb which is going to drain all of you and he didn't have much to begin with um is kill is, is going to kill him i mean there's no way out of it so um quote the knowledge was bitter to the mage lying in the bed in the cold white cell where the aesthetics had placed him that's the uh, assistance at the library. Raceland cursed his frail and fragile body. He cursed the test that shattered it. He cursed the gods who inflicted it upon him. He cursed until he had no more words to hurl, until he was too exhausted even to think, and then lay beneath the white linen sheets that were like winding cloths and felt his heart flutter inside his breath like a trapped bird. See, it, he that describes very well what kind of a character he is. He's cursing all these things, and he's condemned all his friends and his beloved brother to die. And the first thing you can think of is, now I have to die. Piece of crap, you know. Um, he wants to see, uh, he just wants to read the books. There's books of magic in, he's looking for something, basically what he's looking is in the books of Palantis. Like, because every book that has ever been written in Ansel and Korean is in this library. It's, it's absolutely massive. And into in, a world where not a lot of people write books, it makes it feasible. It would still be bigger than the uh, library at Old Town, you know, in uh, in Game of Thrones on Westeros. But, um, you know, that includes all the magic books. So he's come to find something. Um, and one of the best exchanges, I think, in the whole series of books, because Raceland kind of gets gets thrown back at him. Raceland knows that Astinus has seen him before, so he's. But he's looking at him, and Raceland has never met Astinus, which, you know, drives him crazy that Astinus looks at him and knows who he is. And Astinus says, "Well, what do you see when you look at me?" And Raceland says, "I see a man who is not dying." Remember, Raceland sees everything, and all these people, are, everything's dying at all at all times in Raceland's eyes. To to him, Astinus isn't because Astinus is not dying. He, there is no decay. He does not age. So, um, <laughs> and then at the end of this, their exchange, when Astinus, he asked him to read these books, Astinus says, do as you will. I don't care. He's just, you know, you know, coldly says, read the books. I don't give a shit. Um, and then as he's leaving the, the, uh, the room, we get a nice, uh, thing, put Raceland in his place. Quote, Wait, Raceland's voice rasped. The mage reached out a trembling hand as Astinus slowly came to a halt. You asked me what I saw when I looked at you. Now I ask you the same thing. I saw that look upon your face when you bent over me. You recognize me. You know me. Who am I? What do you see? Astinus looked back, his face cold, blank, and impenetrable as marble. You said you saw a man who was not dying, this Torin told the mage softly. Hesitating a moment, he shrugged and once again turned away. I see a man who is. And with that, he walked out the door. That's fucking cold. That's a snap right there. <laughs> um, this is setting up the next series of books with the Dragonlance Legends. Raceland is looking for something called the key. He's trying to get into the Tower of High Sorcery at Palanthus, which has not been opened. Um, he finds to his horror that it's not there, that it's not even in this timeline that it is in buried in history somewhere. So he freaks out. Um, and his, uh, his freak out is not, 
I don't see how he had the strength to do all this when he was so sick, but this is what happened. It's a quote. Thunder boomed and rolled, shaking the library's very foundation. Light flared around the closed door so constantly it might have been day within the room instead of the darkness, uh, darkest hour of the night. The howling and shrieking of a windstorm blended with the maid's shrill screams. There were thuds and thumps, the rustling sounds of sheaves of paper swirling about in a storm. Tongues of flame flickered from beneath the door. He's so pissed off because he can't get what he was looking for. Um, and then um, Raceland basically throws an ass in his teeth that he has no passion or anything that he had the and uh, he doesn't feel anything. Asinus has has news for him. Quote. On the last perfect day, Astinus said, his voice shaking, the three gods will come together. Paladine in his radiance, Queen Tachesis in her darkness, and lastly, Gillian, Lord of Neutrality. In their hands, each bears the key of knowledge. They will place these keys upon the great altar. Upon the altar, we will place my books, the story of every being who has lived upon Kryn throughout time. He's saying this because he wants this to happen, because he lives in every person. He... he um, This uh, this is actually what I should have read because this is a continuation of what he, what he says. Sometimes I, I stumble a little bit. Quote, I sit with my hand on the sphere of time, the sphere you made for me, old friend, and I've traveled the length and breadth of this world chronicling its history. We'll get into that later, the thing that he gave him. I have committed the blackest deeds. I have made the noblest sacrifices. I am human, elf, and ogre. I am male and female. I have borne children. I have murdered children. I saw you as you were. I see you as you are. I, if I seem cold and unfeeling, is because this that is how I survive without losing my sanity. My passion goes into my words. Those who read my books know what it is to have lived in any time in anybody that ever walked this world. He has to live everybody's life. So that's what he's saying. That was a reply to Rice on saying he doesn't feel anything. Um, Raceland passes out in bed and asks us, um, you know, basically just as you're looking at him, you know, it's at the end of the chapter. We get some, uh, some good lightening up here because as always, the person lighted up, light, uh, lighten us up is now we have Tasselhoff. We have, oh, hell yeah. <laughs> um, remember that, uh, Lorana, Tasselhoff and Flint are all in Palanthus. They were successful in uh, their defense of Palanthus and, uh, you know, using the dragon orb. Lorana used the dragon orb, that is, to um, to banish the dragons, to kill the dragons, and um, Sturm died in its defense. So, um <laughs> We get a nice exchange. Quote, I tell you, it was Raceland. And I tell you, one more of your furry elephant teleporting ring, plants living off fair stories, and I'll twist that hoopack around your neck. Flint stepped angrily. <laughs> so he's obviously gotten in his nerves as, as he would, even though Flint secretly loves his you know, stories and stuff. It was too, Raceland Tasselhoff retorted, but he said it under his breath as the two walked along the wide, gleaming streets of the beautiful city of Palanthus. The kinder knew by long association just how far he could push the dwarf, and Flint's threshold for irritation was very low these days. Um, then Flint tells him not to bother Lorana with it. Um, they're out uh, about in the city. Um, one of the funniest things is um, he tried to get into the library <laughs> to talk to him and the very thought of a kinder getting into the great library horrified the aesthetics. They were like, 
you know, they would give that little shake of their head and a horrified look on their face. I think one of the coolest things ever, though, is that there is a point where Tasselhoff talks to Astinus, and I think he actually amuses them. Like he he cracks a little smile when he walks away because he's just his he's so infectious his his joy in life and his you know his comedy because he's so pure he's such a pure hearted person. Um, but they're just going to the city. Uh, ostensibly, it's so they can look at the defenses about what they're going to do with the city when the dragon armies come. I think Lorana was just doing to get the get Tassel off the hell out. Because she's just, he's, even though she loves him, he's bothering the shit out of her. So, um, so we get a little, uh, little description quote heaving aside the kinder walked on kicking stones with his feet and looking around the city once more planthus was well worth the look the city had been fabled even during the age of might for its beauty and grace there was no other city on crin that could compare to at least to human thought that's debatable built on a circular pattern like a wheel the center was literally the hub of the city all the major official buildings were located here and the great sweeping staircases and and graceful columns were breathtaking in their grandeur from this central circle, wide avenues led off in the directions of the eight major compass points, paved with fitted stone, dwarven work, of course, and lined with trees whose leaves were like golden lace year-round. These avenues led to the seaport on the north and to the seven gates of the old city wall. Um, they've stumbled. Um, then they stumble into something, and this is an introduction. I'll go ahead and just tell you. They're, they they draw close to the Tower of High Sorcery in Palanthus, which is a central part of this whole part of the story. Raceland went to Palanthus, teleported himself to Palanthus because he believes that he is the master of past and present who can open this, the Tower of Palanthus. We will get into, as we've discussed, the you know uh, the dragon horse being made and stuff were were by all the orders of High Sorcery working together. And all that stuff, and the, and the Tower of Palanthus. There's only there's only one other Tower of High Sorcery now. There were, I think, there were four at one point, if I'm not if I'm not mistaken. There's only one where they actually reside now and do things is the Tower of Wayrath. That's where uh, Raceland was tested. Uh, that's where all mages go because there are no other, no other towers of High Sorcery. There is one in Palanthus, but it's locked, and nobody can get in there. There are undead guardians that are if they touch you, you die. So um, it's pretty their description of it when we get into it is, is pretty terrifying. So um, but surrounding this thing uh, is this grove of trees that every every tower of sorcerer has a grove of a tower of high sorcery had a grove of trees that surrounded it and did a certain thing. Wayrith just teleports the tower. You know, you can't find it unless the the unless you have great need or the forest decides that you can get there. That's a pretty cool thing. The one at, 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 at I can't remember there was another one where this was. The trees just put you into a blissful sleep and you just fell asleep and you know then the, the guardians would kind of pick you up and wake you up and say you know you, you're not want to be here. Um, then there's the one at Palanthus and it's called the Shoikin Grove and it is pure terror. Like it just, you cannot even approach it without feeling you, you, you can't even see the tops of the trees without feeling me, me or you, any of us would not even want to get on that street where that, where this at the end, where the tower point, this is, that's, that's what we get. You care coming up. Flint starts to feel it. T- 
Tasselhoff, of course, is curious and he doesn't feel fear like other things do, but he starts to feel something. And then he gets closer and closer. And then he turns around and runs. That's how that's how terrifying the short grove is that it made a kinder run because he was intensely curious, but it was such a feeling of terror that it even made him afraid. Um, and it's really cold, like it's bone jarringly cold. So, um, they go back and they report to Lorana about what it was. I mean, and of course, everybody in Palanthus knows what that was. Quote, that would be the Tower of High Sorcery that Lord of Palanthus told Lorana that evening as they entered the map room of the beautiful palace on the hill overlooking the city. No wonder your little friend was terrified. I'm surprised he got as far as the Shoiking Oak Grove. He's akin to Lorana, replied smiling. Ah, yes. Well, that explains it. Now, that's something I hadn't considered, you know, hiring Kinder to do the work around the tower. They they talked about how there are all these nice buildings around this tower are empty, you know, and they were wondering why. And that's when they started to feel Flint and Tazhoff talking about the, the terror. Um, we have to pay the most outrageous prices to get men to go into those buildings once a year and keep them in good repair. But then the Lord appeared downcast. I don't suppose the talented people would be all pleased to see a sizable number of Kinder in the city. This guy's name is Lord Lamothus. Um, he's a typical like rich guy cunt I mean he's not a very likable character I never he's very condescending he's you know Palanthus is you know think of New York City only if it's nice like really nice and how they look down on everybody else you know, consider the fact that if their city was absolutely just gorgeous in every facet of it, and it's the center of might and power in the whole world, which it kind of is, but now apply that, you know, as if their city was a, a, a wonder of the modern world and think how insufferable they would be, especially the people who are in control of the thing, which this guy is. So, um, you know, they're just, uh, Hold on one second. He, uh, she wants to see the tower. So Amothus, you know, gets up and sweeps the curtains aside. Quote, the Lord drew the curtains aside with a trembling hand, his face dark with sorrow. Startled at such emotion, Lorana looked out curiously, then it drew in a breath. The sun was sinking behind the snow-capped mountains, streaking the sky with red and purple. The vibrant colors shimmered on the pure white buildings of Palanthus as the rare translucent marble from which they were built caught the dying light. Lorana had never imagined such beauty could exist in the world of humans. It robbed her beloved homeland of well nasty. That's quite a that's quite a statement or quite a feeling. Then her eyes were drawn to a darkness within within the shimmering pearl radiance. A single tower rose up to the sky. It was tall, even though the palace bird was perched on a hill. The top of the tower was only slightly below her line of sight. Made of black marble, it stood out in distinct contrast to the white marble of the city around it. Minarets must have once graced its gleaming surface, she saw. These, these were now crumbling and broken. Dark windows, like empty eye sockets, stared slightlessly into the world. A fence surrounded it. The fence, too, was black, and on the gate of the fence, Laurent saw something fluttering. For a moment, she thought it was a huge bird, trapped there, for it seemed alive. But just as she was about to call the Lord's attention to it, he shut the curtains with a shiver. You can't take even looking at it. Um, then Astinus comes in um, and to Lorana's surprise who is used to dealing with royalty everybody in the place basically bows to him and you know is, is like treating him like a king 
she doesn't get it because he's not royalty. She's looking at him, but then she sees him and she doesn't care for him at first. She's like, he's very cold. I don't like the way he looks. And he looks like he's carved out of marble. Um, there's a description quote. Aston entered Astonus entered with an ease and assurance that led her to believe he would stand unabashed in the presence of all the royalty on Crin and, 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 and the heavens as well. He seemed middle-aged, but there was an angel's quality about him. His face might have been chiseled out of the marble of Planethus itself, and at first, Lerano was, was repelled by the cold, passionless quality of that face. Then she saw the man's dark eyes literally blazed with light, as they lit from within by the fire of a thousand souls. Um... We're going to finish this episode with a description of the Tower of Planetis and what happened. It was uh, told um, by, I remember it was told by Asnes who was there, who saw that all this go down. Quote, my tale must begin with that what became known in hindsight as the Lost Battles. During the Age of Might, when the King Priest of Istar began jumping at shadows, he gave his fears a name, magic users. He feared them. He feared their vast power. He did not understand it, so it became a threat to him. It was easy to arouse the populace against the magic users. Although widely respected, widely respected, they were never trusted, primarily because they allowed among their ranks representation, representatives of all the three powers in the universe, the white robes of good, the red robes of neutrality, and the black robes of evil. For they understood as the king priest did not that the three the universe swings and balance among these three and that to disturb the balance is to invite destruction and so the people rose against the magic users the five towers of high source who were prime targets naturally for it was in these towers that the powers of the order were most concentrated and it was in these towers that the young mages came to take the test those who dared for the trials are arduous and worse hazardous indeed failure means one thing death Lana didn't know this, and she says, death, then Raceland, and he continues, quote, risked his life to take the test, and he nearly paid the price. That is neither here nor there, however. Because of this deadly penalty for failure, dark rumors were spread about the Tower of House Sorcery. In vain, the magic users sought to explain that there were, there were only centers of learning and that each young mage risking his life did so willingly, understanding the person, purpose behind it. Here, too, in the towers, the mages kept their spellbooks and their scrolls, their implements of magic, but no one believed them. The stories of strange rites and rituals and sacrifices spread among the people, fostered by the king priests, priests and his clerics for their own ends. And then came the day when the populace rose against the magic users, and for only, for only the second time in the history of the order, the robes came together. Remember, the first time was the creation of the dragon orbs. The first time, as <laughs> I'm sorry... I should have read that again because he says that. The first time was during the creation of the Dragon Orbs, which contained the essence of good and blah, blah, blah. Um, now they came together to protect their towers. Um, the magic users lost. Um, and basically we're going to just give over the Tower of Palanthus to the King Priest, who was greedy as shit. It was rightly claimed and thought of the the treasures that were inside the uh the towers um and the king priest was waiting to get the key to get his hands on them um being the fun, he uh, he would he would really call into mind for me a a, a particularly skilled televangelist who can even sway people who aren't believers to think that they're a good person that's happened to me before like uh i used to think Billy Graham was a good person. And then I, well, that was when I was much younger. I saw the look he gave me, but then I found out what a piece of garbage we all did. Yeah. What a piece of garbage he actually is. So, you know, all of them, you know, your Joel Austin's all those people. Imagine that only he 
has succeeded in duping everyone. And not even duping, he's actually able to perform actual miracles. The King Proof of Istar was able to perform miracles. He could, I don't know if he could raise the dead, but he could heal people, he could do things like that. And for a while, he was kind of a good person, you know, but then all the power went to his head. You know, when you said Billy Graham, I thought you were talking about superstar Billy Graham, the professional wrestler. <laughs> I never realized that they who, had the same name. Who Hulk Hogan jacked most of his gimmick from. Oh, and Macho Man stole the rest of that gimmick. Oh, absolutely. Uh, so, they divvied up that gimmick. Yeah. And I don't think it was 50-50 either. pretty well for it. Right. Yeah. Um, but then at the end, right before they're getting ready to get over this tower, um, quote, the wizard started to hand the silver key to the Lord, continue Astinus in a deep, sad voice. Suddenly, one of the black robes appeared in a window in the upper stories. As the people stared at him in horror, he shouted, The gates will remain closed, and the hall is empty until the day come, comes when the master of both the past and the present returns with power. Then the evil mage leapt, leaped out, hurling himself down upon the gates. And as the barbs of silver and gold pierced the black robes, he cast a curse upon the tower. His blood stained the ground. The silver and gold gates withered and twisted and turned to black. The shimmering tower of white and red faded to ice gray stone. Its black minarets crumbled. That's setting the stage for... I like that they did this, that uh, they're setting the stage for their next trilogy because it is all one story, really. But this was a part that needed to be told. And I'm glad they did it with Astinus because he was able to tell it from his point of view and uh, really sets up where we're going for the next chapter and for the others. So uh, come back next week and we'll uh, get into the second part of Dragon of the Spring Dawning. 